Hi, my name is G.V. Freeman, and welcome to Psychedelic IQ, a podcast devoted to offering grounded and practical wisdom for psychedelic practitioners. At Psychedelic IQ, we try and weave our way between the secular and the sacred, and we've set our primary intentions on improving positive outcomes, increasing safety, and building healthy community within the psychedelic landscape. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a positive review, and always remember, the path is wiser than the traveler. I think that as not only practitioners, but often participants operating in the psychedelic landscape, we often overweight the experience itself. We obviously know that these molecules have such profound power and can be life-changing for so many different things. And at the same time, I think that we do not put enough emphasis on integrating and in my word activating our experiences and using all of this newfound awareness and and direction into our lives so today i'm really excited to bring daniel shankin onto the podcast daniel specializes in psychedelic integration we talk about what integration is what it isn't how integration can intersect with safety and the depth of the experience what really key differences there are between some models of psychotherapy and integration coaching. What you, if you are building an integration practice, if you're a guide, maybe coming out of a training program and you do have a focus and want to put some effort into integration, what are some of the stages and how you might want to include integration into your work? And then some basic steps to walk your clients through as they integrate their experience, whether those might be more simple surface level experiences or even really big, powerful experiences. Daniel shows a few phases that people can go through. And I also think that there's a really, really amazing conversation we have at the end of this talking about the financial exchange and accessibility versus sustainability as we begin to build our lives as practitioners in not only the psychedelic, but the spiritual world in general. As a psychedelic integration coach, Daniel serves people with emerging spiritual visions to weave their newfound truths into their lives in a way that is sustainable, harmonious, compassionate, and wise. His methods are fiercely practical while maintaining space for mystery and magic to emerge. He offers time-tested and scientifically backed tools so clients can create a life for themselves that is aligned with their deeper values and manifests measurable results that matter. As the founder and director of TAM Integration, he's committed to offering radically accessible and inclusive support and education for people who are wanting to transform, heal, and grow. TAM's integration circles and online conferences enjoy a worldwide audience and much critical acclaim. He also leads the year-long Mount TAM Psychedelic Integration Coaching Program, training emerging leaders in the facilitation of transformational engagement. He and his wife live in a tiny town in New England where they forage for mushrooms and throw rocks into creeks with their two young children. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Welcome to uh, Psychedelic IQ. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you doing today? I'm I'm well, I'm well. I didn't realize it until uh, my participation with Integration Jam and then you had checked out one of my or uh, the portion of my presentation, but we are 
uh, spirit brothers from another master in some ways. Yes. Remind me what GV stands for. Why is it escaping me right now? Govindas. Govindas. Okay. Yeah. Um, good to meet you. I'm Sitaram Das. <laughs> we're both um, somewhat descendants of Neem Karoli Baba. Yeah. Yeah. To- we're totally descendants yeah. of Neem Karoli Baba. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for taking time. I needed a psychedelic guru. Like I needed a guru who ate the acid. <laughs> All nine hits. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, before we get started, maybe tell us a little bit about your backstory um, and what kind of life you live today. Right. Well, I'm going to tell you in terms of of, of Maharaji, and, and maybe that turns off the people who are listening, but they weren't going to work with me anyway, so whatever. If it's true, it's important. I had, you know, stretched myself really, really far, you know, in college and the years after, up until I was, you know, 24, 25, doing a lot of recreational turn spiritual psychedelic use like at some point it just turned you know I, I i started in high school and you know the psychedelics were content to let me have a good time and then i started doing yoga and meditation and kind of learning about enlightenment and i was like oh okay like i'll just be enlightened and that's that's cool like that seems like that goes along with kind of the beatles you know going to india and you know, learning to play sitar, like that seemed like a good way to go. And what started to happen is I would go into these spaces that were supposed to be recreational and just got hit with all of the work that I needed to do. Like just kind of flattened by like, oh, you think you want to be, you want to be a Buddha? Like this is all of the stuff that's in your way from enlightenment. And it was like a rude awakening in a lot of ways, but being young and generally unambitious, I just was like, well, I don't have anything else to do. I'll just work on this. And I remember bringing this, these thoughts to what I thought was an elder. He's probably 27. And he gave me a copy of Be Here Now Mm. and was like, read this and look in the back, like the back of Be Here Now is basically an integration manual. And he was like, do this, it'll, it'll work out. And so I started kind of taking these practices to heart. And I remember I left school and I came back to my hometown, got a job at the local yoga studio, which just so happened to have pictures of Maharaji all over the place. And I remember I was chanting with the teacher, the guy who was running the place, in front of this big picture of Maharaji. And in my mind, Maharaji said to me, oh, you like things trippy. I'll make you a deal. You keep chanting and I'll make sure things stay trippy. And I did. And he did. And what I started to learn was, you know, the, 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 the sacraments, we'll just call them sacraments in this context, were guides to how to live vibrationally. Mm. And so then the question is, is how do I keep my vibration as high as the psychedelics can take them kind of all the time. And that's what I've been trying. And that's what integration is for me. Like that's what I'm trying to do. You couldn't have walked us into a better opportunity to explore. I think um, what you're doing at TAM integration and really at a, from a 10,000 foot view, like how do you view integration? What, what is integration from your perspective? Well, that's a big part of it. Integration is kind of what you make of it. And it's a new word. 
right? In like 1999, when I needed it, when I started chanting and doing yoga in order to integrate my experience, that wasn't a word, right? That was just kind of getting grounded and getting my act together, right? But integration on one hand, you know, there's the cognitive thing where, oh, I, I, I took the molecule. I learned a lesson. I want to try and remember that lesson and live my life from that place. All right, cool. You know, on another hand, it is this somatic vibrational component of embodying you know, a lot of the best experiences we have on psychedelics have nothing to do with the cognitive mind it has to do with the feeling of being connected, the feeling of being compassionate, the feeling of being empathetic and understanding, right? And that's something that lives in the body, the feeling of wanting to be of service, right? And so what do I have to do in my, t- in my tissues to get myself kind of humming in that way? And so there's that. And then there's kind of the, the trauma perspective where sometimes we take a molecule, a medicine, we'll use medicine in this term, and all of a sudden we remember traumatic things that happened to us. And so we actually have to integrate our own personal history and memories and biography into something that is cohesive and understandable, right? That's something the Bessel van der Kolk talks about in The Body Keeps the Score, is that sometimes we don't even know what happened to us early in our early life and then making sense of that and finding peace there and figuring out how we can kind of heal that and put that to rest so that we can live life in a more cohesive way. And so that's, you know, if you ask me this tomorrow, you get some of the same stuff and you get some different stuff. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and just like beat, you know, just beat all the mystery out of integration right here. Part of it, oh, there you go. Part of it's becoming comfortable with the mystery. Can you integrate yourself into the mystery and the vibrancy of life? Yeah. So I just finished doing some work with my teachers from Peru. And mm-hmm. we're, uh, they're primarily, they serve both ayahuasca and Wachuma, but primarily working with Wachuma with them. And I had an experience of remembering things that were not like, completely blocked out of my consciousness. It was not like repressed memories, but I refelt them again in a way that brought up a lot of emotion. Um, and when I explained this to them, they were like, yeah, the medicine is very important or very intelligent. It is allowing you to see what you need to see at the time that you need to see it. The medicine is just showing you step by step. And you couldn't have felt those feelings maybe a year ago or two years ago. Mm-hmm. And now you're ready. Your vibration has increased enough that you're able to see some of these or experience some of those uh, emotions. And I'm curious if, from your perspective, practically speaking, if we're talking to a practitioner today who doesn't know anything about integration, who is serving medicine but is not really working with people after the fact, what would you say to that person? Well, you might want to consider doing that and getting trained to do that. First (laughs) of all, Um, that you might be, you know, depending on the con the context is that you might be doing people a real disservice and you you might be leaving your people out to dry. Hmm. And, you know, this is different in different cultures, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that I'm talking to mostly Northern people, Northern hemisphere people, modern people. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm talking to a ketamine clinician, 
who has barely even taken any psychedelics themselves, but is you know jacking people up on ketamine and then letting them loose in the world, is that you might be causing a lot of harm without knowing it. So there's that. And you should probably come and get, come and train with me. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to say to that person. But there's a lot of lip service paid to integration. You know, it's like you might go into the ketamine clinic and then they hand you like a, a flyer. Kind of like, you know, when you go and get a tattoo and they give you a tattoo, they give you one, one, a page of that says, okay, make sure you put ointment on this and keep it out of the sun. And just like that, a clinician might give you a piece of paper that says you should do some journaling and some yoga. And that may or may not be enough. There is something that I like to call the spectrum of vulnerability, right? People come out of psychedelic states and they're somewhere on a spectrum of vulnerability and they might come out. And if they are in a well-held container and they've done good preparation and their psychology is whatever, and the stars are in the right place, whatever, they might come out feeling really well-resourced and amazing and really strong and really stable, and it might stay that way. They might come out in total crisis. They'll probably be somewhere in the middle, and then sometimes they come out feeling really strong, and that changes over time. And they're like, you know, they start to come down, and that starts to, they come down over time. And, and that seems to be confusing for them. And if they have nobody there, then they're going to struggle even more, right? We know the community is the medicine. And so to just hand somebody a paper and say, good luck, you know, do the journaling practices and come back for another session, you know, in a month or two is people, people, your clients deserve more than that, right? Your clients deserve somebody who's going through all parts of the ceremony with them. I'll take a breath and pause there. I could go, I could stay on my soapbox longer, but that's good for me. No, I really appreciate you stepping up on the soapbox. I think it's it's incredibly important. I'm going to go back to something that you mentioned, like when in 1999, you didn't have the word integration when you were sort of starting this process. And I had yoga teachers. What about what would you say to and you also like put a pin in like different cultures, but how do indigenous practitioners approach the idea or the concepts around integration i I couldn't i could i'm not expert enough i don't i don't want to because first of all indigenous cultures are not a monolith right so we've got them all they're all over the globe and they all have different practices and, and admittedly i don't do a lot of traditionally indigenous work hmm. so i'm not the best person to this might be the, uh, you might give me the same answer to this question, but I think there's a couple of models. There's many models that we're seeing um, become more and more popular. The, obviously, the, the more clinical model that we see in a ketamine clinic, we are underground guides that are probably creating more sacred containers for, since it was criminalized in the 60s, 70s. Um, and then there are indigenous practitioners who may drop into a community, may serve ayahuasca, wachuma for two, three, four nights, and then they they move to the next community. They they might return back to to South America. How would you, or what would you say to either the practitioner or the community that is hosting that practitioner about integration? 
Right. Well, this is where the integration circle is really, really important. And I, I think that sort of the, the loose and open integration model, integration circle model that exists today, you know, I wanted to, I, I run an, an integration circle. Our organization runs several integration circles and we wanted them to be open. We wanted them to be, them to be accessible because really most of the integration circles were happening were the ones that you're kind of talking about where there's sort of like a medicine community, uh, you know, slash church in some ways, and they were taking care of each other. And hopefully they are. Hopefully your your community is tight-knit. If you're in one of those, your community is tight-knit and they're taking care of each other and they are doing the deal. And you know that you can reach out to those people and be with them on sort of this peer community level. And I think that's a great way to go, you know, in most cases. And, you know, they speak a shared language and understand, you know, deeply what each other are going through. And, you know, in, in many cases, it works. Tell me what you feel your where where preparation. You talk a lot about preparation. I think I've heard you say that the the most or maybe the first step in integration is good preparation. And correct me if I'm wrong. An ounce of preparation is worth a pound of integration. Okay. So tell me how those two things intersect in your mind with safety. Well, safety. So, I mean, we can look at it a couple of ways. So if there's the more safety there is in a session, the deeper a person can go. So there's that, right? If you create safety, somebody, people will be able to let their guard down and go deep. Uh, because as we know, you know, if, if you know, if you've, if you've done this stuff, we have a lot of defense mechanisms and strategies of evasion. And the material that comes up can be terrifying. And the material that comes up can easily be projected on our environment. So somebody saying, you know, like this, this is really scary. What they're saying is they don't feel safe. Like, like the environment could be perfect. It could be safe and it could be well held and it could be with people that love you and all of that kind of thing. And you still don't feel safe, but you, you, but you came in with that lack of safety. So good preparation helps the person kind of like open and recognize some of the stuff that might come. You know, if you, if you talk with somebody about, you know, every step of the way, this is what's going to happen. This is what you can expect. This is, I was in a ceremony once and the leader said, if you see a Sarah shaped object coming towards you to put more material in your pipe that's okay it's sarah she's putting more material in your pipe <laughs> right you know what i mean so everything was like really well choreographed and kind of front-loaded so that you're like okay you know he said i was going to go down this hallway and somebody was going to smudge me and then i was going to go up the stairs and there was going to be a cushion i could pick a cushion and and there was and all of that stuff happened so that kind of thing and so i'm working backwards so i'm working like you know, and, and then even just preparing your psychology, kind of opening the doors to what kind of material has inspired you to come to meet the medicine. You know, this kind of struggle or that kind of struggle or this kind of challenge. And if you spend time talking with somebody who makes you feel safe enough to open up about that, then you're less surprised by your own psychic material. So all of these kinds of things to make people very comfortable with who they are, what they've got going on, what they can expect from the, safe, the space, 
And then following through with all of that gives people really good chances of success and a really good chance that they'll come out of it feeling appropriately vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Appropriate, you know, appropriate vulnerability is really a great place to be. You know, feeling like, oh, I can be raw and I can um, be open to this old stuff that's been tormenting me and I can let it have the light of day and some fresh air. Kind of what I think about appropriate vulnerability, I, I almost think of like ventilation, mm. freshness, getting a little sun on it. Follow that thread. What does a practitioner do? to create appropriate vulnerability. They model it. So now I'm going to take a hard left turn because my brain just connected to another question that I wanted to ask you. What is the difference between therapy and integration? Well, it's it's apples and oranges, right? So it's like therapy, it can be, you know, therapy can be in service to integration, right? So it's, it's not like there's a difference per se. Um, integration can call fall under the umbrella, but I'm, I mean, I'm a coach. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. And, and what I'm saying is, you know, is, is not always true for all therapists, right? So I know therapists that are very like human centered and very positive in their regard for people, but as a, as a system therapy, psychotherapy has, has evolved in relationship to pathology and mental illness and sort of offness of people that's kind of what it's that's that's how it was designed it was designed to work with people where something was off about them right and it's oriented around kind of sickness pathology and the like and i know that it has evolved and not all therapists are like that but that's kind of the basic model i think whereas coaching assumes excellence right it assumes that the person is great and has amazing potential for creativity possibility, leadership, and generativity. And it orients itself around that those principles. And so I generally like to work with people who are awesome and getting better. And that's the lens that I, I look through. Kind of like, you know the old Rumi quote. See if you can guess, let's do an experiment in, in psychic powers. See if you can guess the Rumi quote that I'm thinking. Oh, I'm, I'm probably not the Rumi expert that you think that I am. So I might have to ask you to tag me in on this one. um we're all god in drag ah i think it's a loose translation that uh, that is a ram das quote that i have definitely uh i'm definitely familiar with it's a ram das i didn't even i didn't it could come from Rumi. it's very possible um right yeah i i totally agree with that and i would you yeah i guess if we look at this from uh, that perspective from a really spiritual mystical perspective we can say that we're all god in drag and typical let's say maybe traditional let's say traditional therapy doesn't have that same approach doesn't have that same feeling yeah orientation for sure what would you say to therapists who may have been practicing in their field of study for maybe decades but who are now interested in going down this path of psychedelics they see huge advantages what would you tell them? What advice would you give them? Well, I would just, you know, if you look at people who are, had a lot to say about this for many years, you know, talking about like, you know, everybody from Metzner, 
you know, Metzner and Leary and Fadiman and Janice Phelps, like all of these people who talk about the qualities of a good sitter, they talk about having a wide range of experience with psychedelics, right? a range of experiences. So again, you know, I, I wouldn't think that you're not going to be doing the best service to people if you've just had three ketamine experiences, or even if you've had 10. There, there's, you'd want a wide range of experiences, probably with a wide range of molecules. I'm not telling anybody to break the law, but to have the kind of gravitas or the, as Janice Phelps calls it, the empathetic abiding presence, kind of what, what we, we want. It would be weird for me to, like, I know what it looks like in somebody's eyes when they don't have that, when they're not solid and grounded. Like you, you don't want, we probably all, you know, if you've been out in the world and you've been high and you run into somebody who doesn't know what it's like to be high and they're looking at you, like trying to like figure out like, Hey, is this, Hey, crazy, right? Oh yeah. Wow. You know, and they don't really get where you're at. And to see that look, you know, and, and as somebody has told me about this, it's like they went in and they did a treatment with somebody and they kind of felt like a lab rat. The therapist kind of was trying to figure them out. They were, they were trying to like, they didn't understand what the person was going through. And they had this, this kind of like curious, needy look in their eye. As opposed to, I've seen, I, I was watching this interview with Bill Richards once and he was, he was just, there was having a regular interview. And then he said something that was like so quirky and so wry. And he did it with this glimmer in his eye of just somebody who knew. And I was like that guy. I mean, it was like, and I don't know. And it, it was just, it was a split second. And I don't know who else caught it, but I was like, oh, that guy, like, I, I'd be cool. Like, I would like to get high with Bill. He gets, like, he gets it. You know, he's not, like, trying to figure out what's going on. Like, the guy has been there. Really fake. You know, you've got to go mad a couple of times. You know, we're all mad here. There's a reason people, why trippers like the Mad Hatter. You know, one of my experiences we had was when a forensic psychiatrist wanted to observe an ayahuasca circle that I was organizing. And I went to the Corandero and asked him whether or not we could have an observer. And he said, no, uh, that he did not allow observers in the circle because with observation comes judgment. And what I heard, like in that participant that you were talking about, being kind of observed or feeling like a lab rat, there is there is some sense if you've never been in the hole before, there's some sense of standing on the at ground level and looking down and saying, I see you down there, but I'm just watching. Like I'm not I'm not ready to be in the hole with you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, observers. It's, that's kind of one of I'm not a burning man person, but you know, one of the thing is one of their tenants is like all about participation. It was the same thing with the acid tests. Yeah. Now, there was they were blurring the line between uh, observer and performer and you know, subject and object and kind of creating a non-dual experience where everybody's participating somewhere. Beautiful. I love uh, I love that thought. You're creating a non-dual experience where the we're all God and drag. The boundaries begin to sort of slip away and we can drop into the experience with that person. Yeah, it's like an, it's like the ultimate potluck. 
<laughs> exactly. Right. Everybody's bringing everybody's bringing what they got. Yeah. And that's absolutely. what and that's what you're eating. We follow that thread down just a little farther. How how important it is do you think to have experience with a specific molecule to be able to effectively help someone integrate their experience with that molecule? Well, you know, 50-50. Like, I haven't done any ibogaine. I don't really have any interest in doing any ibogaine. Um, it's a little, you know, from my understanding, I mean, not only is it very intense, and that's fine, I don't mind intensity. It seems like it's a little hard on the body in some ways. And that concerns me of my own health reasons. But yeah, I, I, I'm comfortable with my molecular allies, you know, for the most part as it is. And, you know, I, I, I have my, I, I know I've got my eye on what maybe is next for me, that kind of thing. But that said, I've worked with somebody who is an ibogaine person. And I've worked on, you know, integrating their past experiences and preparing them to go back down. And it seemed to work out pretty well. We had a great relationship. And so at some point you are, you're working, if you're doing integration coaching, you're working with a person, you're not working with a molecule per se, you know, maybe secondarily if, you know, it's not relationship coaching really, but it kind of is. So, you know, if there's a wide variety of experiences under your belt, you can you can still show up. You know, some things are are weird and different. Like, you know, I, I've, I've done integration coaching around 5-MEO, both before and after I've done 5-MEO. Right? <laughs> and that has shifted my perspective on it a little bit. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, and I still feel like, you know, the person who came to me before still got pretty great care, right? But there might've been a few things I had done differently if I had been in the after stage and, you know, and, and, and so things like that, but you, we're showing up for people in an open, curious, flexible way. And it's not always totally about the molecule. It's about the person and what's arising for them. And a lot of the time and, and us bringing our abiding presence to that, but to go back to Phelps emp empathetic abiding presence. Would you say there, have you found any advantages or disadvantages to doing integration work with your, with the guide who gave you the experience versus maybe a third party, somebody like you who might not have been there while the journey was happening? Well, the thing is, is, is we have to define integration. It, it please, um, and, well, an integration coaching. So your ceremonialist might not be trained in methodologies that are going to help you really evoke some depth, depth and some uh, introspection around what happened. You know what I mean? Like if integration, so, you know, there's these things, integration circles, and it's basically um, show and tell, right? It's a story, it's story time, which is great. Like, hold on, wait. I have this Ralph Metzner book off the shelf. What does he call it? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the telling of stories. Integration, celebration, the telling of stories. Um, so anybody can listen to your story. And hopefully they can listen to it without judgment. It, are, is that person going to be skilled in helping you make meaning of it? 
Are they going to be skilled in helping you um, connect the dots, and make associations in a way that creates insight? Right. So there's the experience. And usually the experience comes with some insight. Good integration coaching will often produce additional insight through the use of reflection, inquiry, presence. And this is one of the reasons why in my coaching training, I really like when I get ceremonialists. You know, like I've had people show up to my trainings and, you know, they've been sitting in Peru, you know, with ayahuasca for 30 years, but don't have the skills for the pre and post container. Don't know how to like follow a thread of questioning, um, deeper and greater awareness about what's happening. I guess that's my answer to that. What do you think of that? How does that land? I'm going to keep following the thread. Um, I think the, the conversation is, is fascinating to me. You, you talked a lot about insight. So when I think of the, a couple of things that happened for me after the ceremony is integration. What I, what I call integration is the understanding and the insight. And then for me, there's an extra step. There's activation. Taking that insight and and building it <laughs> into your life. Like, how do I take yep. this insight and actually do something? Talk to me about that. Well, yeah, that's the next thing. Like, we've to kind of, to, that sort of happens. That's almost like the last step. You know, there's, we want aftercare. We want to make sure you're safe. Your vulnerability is managed. You're doing things that, you know, you're getting your acupuncture. You're going to yoga. You're managing your state. You're maybe doing practices that help you stay connected to that somatic experience of compassion. You're finding meaning that is enabling your psychology to flourish. Um, you're maybe developing uh, and that, that kind of thing. But then maybe you want to build a center. You want to build your own retreat center, for example. And then the question is, and this is great, and this is something I picked up from somebody who has nothing to do with psychedelics. I don't know if you've seen this guy, Alex Hormozy popping up into my algorithm i guess you know is but he's a he does a lot of stuff around productivity and he talks about if you want to grow yourself the way you grow yourself is you want to look at your skills your traits and your beliefs makes a lot of sense and so if you want to open up a retreat center do you have the skills the traits and the beliefs to do that i don't i don't know how to open up a retreat center there's, I could run parts of it reasonably well, but to, you know, to find the land, you know, and, and put the structure on it, you know, and, and have the team around it. I don't have those, like the skills of commercial real estate, architecture, like that. Um, there's probably a team, you know, my team building grow. And then also now I have this belief that like, I, I don't think I could do that. Then I would have to adjust that. And so giving people, helping, well, not giving people, but working with them to see where their strengths and their weaknesses lie, because sometimes people come out of the ceremony space with just this kind of like build it and they will come mentality. They're like, oh, if I just believe like this is my purpose. Um, I lost a client once who they were a tech person and. They were making a good living doing tech, as, as you do in, in the band. And they came out of a journey, and 
they're like, I'm going to be a Reiki practitioner and I should be able to replace my tech income with Reiki before the end of the year. And my psychic said, that's possible if I just stay in alignment. And <laughs> sorry, I probably shouldn't be laughing right now, but I had to hold but, myself uh, back I, too. But like, I don't know about <laughs> you, but I've been an independent healing artist for going on 25 years, you know, never really had a job, you know, just doing the things, teaching the yoga, teaching the meditation, doing the, doing the Reiki, doing the body work, that kind of stuff. And I've seen, I've seen tech, tech worker pay stubs. It's different. Right. And so I suggested that that wasn't realistic and they got really mad. And even when I tried to suggest, oh, well, you know, it's like, let's find the balance. Let's grow this in a reasonable way. Let's kind of figure out, have you ever worked for yourself before? No. Have you ever, do you know how to charge for services rendered? No, not really. And so there's a real learning curve. Then on another hand, sort of a success story. And I should check in on this guy. I haven't talked to him in many years. Um, he wanted to, he was a retreat center. I want to build a retreat center. You know how to build a retreat. I don't know how to build it. What he started doing on his land was having a, a farmer's market and a flea market. Like he and his wife figured out how to open their space up to the community on that level. Didn't require any big structures. Didn't require, you know, didn't require breaking ground, very minimal infrastructure. And he started to work on his skills, his traits and his beliefs about like what it meant to bring people together, what it meant to like, you know, host and have hospitality and have a structure for people to come and do their things. And, you know, he might be well on his way, you know, if his ultimate goal remained opening up a center, like that's a really good first step like that's a practical step that you can take and he did it because i mean even starting that is it's not easy it's easier than building a well it'll be it's easier than building a retreat space but it's not nothing i think i did it you you, uh a question popped into my mind when you were sharing some of this stuff especially about the reiki practitioner that I think one of the common things when I'm helping people integrate experiences that I get is, well, the medicine told me to do X, Y, Z. Medicine told me to build a retreat center. The medicine told me to swap all of my tech income with Reiki income. It told me to be a Cordonero and move to Costa Rica. And what would you say to uh, maybe practitioners who are bumping up against that? And, you know, and even how do you deal with an individual who got a really strong message uh, that is very different than the life that they're living today. We, I teach them about needs, right? So I need to build a retreat center is I want more community around me. I want to step into my leadership. I want to be creative, right? Those are the needs under, underneath that question Mm. is, is, so when our needs are repressed for so long, because I don't know if you know this, but a lot of us, our needs have been repressed for so long. Like it hasn't been okay or safe 
were validated for us to have needs, or certain ones at least. And then they just get pushed down, and then they get pushed down, and they, and they get pushed down, and then they come back with a vengeance. But the thing is, we haven't developed the skills that we need to meet those needs. Like we don't like. I know, like I get hungry. I need food. Like I know how to feed myself. You know, I'm a pretty good cook. You know, I have developed the skills to feed myself in a way that is healthy and delicious. Right. If I didn't, and I had been starving, I might just shove whatever into my face as quick as I could. So there's that. So recognizing what's underneath the thing that you think you want to do. Also, I was just talking somebody about the, uh, I, I, I'm going to pronounce it terribly, the, the weary kuta, right? The, the folks who work with, the weary kuta who work with peyote. Like they know that the peyote lies, right? That the peyote speaks in codes and riddles and tricks, right? Mm. They're aware of that. And, you know, to the best of my knowledge, when they start moving towards the ceremony, they start doing it with each other. You know, they start calling the desert the ocean and stuff like that. This is the Hayoka, the sa- the sacred clown, the 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 trickster that comes into ceremony. Yeah, so there's this kind of stuff. And so it's not always it might not always just be telling you straight up. So there's that. And this is the reason why we have yama and niyama, right? This is why when you look at any real wisdom path, what's right, Govindas, what's right at the beginning of any wisdom path? First thing that comes to mind is awareness. And well, ethical precepts. Ah, the yamas and the niyamas. So it's like if the medicine tells you to kill your neighbor, you're like, no, it was like I was trained in the ethical precept of nonviolence. It is universally applicable. I always practice it. It tells you to go, you know, steal your neighbor's car. Like, no, I don't steal. It's universally applicable. And so, you know, sexual ethics, you know, for example, it's all in there. And so you give yourself some guide guidelines guide rails even non-greediness oh i have to have this i have to do this it's like well relax so meeting i think this is what you were just talking about what's that i was just gonna say what i think this is a a really huge component that is missing in a lot of the corporatized psychedelic culture that we are experiencing today or even medicalized psychedelic culture these the concepts of um, right action uh, the the wisdom teachings are not present in a lot of the work that's being done today and whether it's wisdom teachings from yoga or buddhism or whether it's wisdom teachings that are coming from you know a two three thousand year old lineage from south america that when you get separated from the wisdom teachings there's a lot of bad shit that can happen. Yeah. It's really interesting. What's cool is you hang out with Buddhists or yogis, and they'll tell you where they messed up. They'll just talk about it. It's like, oh, you know, I was like, 
that they'll tell you where they broke Yama and Niyama. And that really, you can't break Yama and Niyama. You can just break yourself against it, as one of my teachers would say. Mm-hmm. Oh, like I did this thing, it was dishonest. And they will, there will be these kind of casual confessions because they know that by ventilating it, we're back to by giving it air and light, that that there's a purification process that's happening there. There's a humility building process that's happening there. And they know that they're in a community of people that all know that we all do it. And so there's less shame about it and there's less posturing about being perfect. And one of the things that I see in the psychedelic culture, and maybe it's also just in general, like social media, um, popular culture where everybody's like afraid of being canceled and stuff and everybody's nitpicking what everybody's doing all the time. There's not an understanding that we're all constantly screwing up and everybody's trying to be perfect because they're terrified that they're going to get in trouble, that they like, you know, ate a thing out of their salad bar bowl before they rung it up at Whole Foods. Yeah, just don't do it next time. We get it. Like, keep move up, move along. Oh, you said something that hurt somebody's feelings. Okay, yeah, we all do that. Move along. But if we we have a culture where people are terrified of not being perfect, and it's not helping, it's the beauty of having true spiritual community, satsang, sangha, whatever tradition you might want to call it. But here in our community, we we sort of preach that we're all going to make mistakes and that it's the ability to make the mistake, have the rupture, come back into the community, have the repair and to not only accept it, but sort of embrace some of it to allow people to, to live out some of the stuff that they need to live out and then, yeah, continue bringing air to it Uh, better out than in. Yeah. I'm going to, Shift gears. We've got uh, you know, 10, 15 minutes left. And I just want to say, maybe ask the question, um, you have a- an integration training program that I think anybody coming out of a guide training program already or a even a ceremonialist that has been working in you know, another culture or in a, in a lineage who is wanting to bring maybe deeper healing back to their community. If, if you were going to tell somebody what absolutely needed to be included in their integration program, what would it be? Like, give us a, give us a little hint of what we would get if we actually signed up in the, in the training program. One of the things about my program is that we're intensely practical, right? So I'll tell you what doesn't need to be in your training program. That was my next question. What doesn't need to be in your training program is piles and piles of research papers about whether or not psilocybin is good for major depressive disorder. Spoiler alert, usually it is. Right? It's like you don't like don't charge people money to make them watch YouTube videos of people presenting their research. We know that it pretty much works. Teach people how to be with people. Teach people how to ask evocative questions that will make them gain awareness and a deeper understanding of themselves, their place in the world, and what they can do to make it better. I don't care about your research. We have we have a little like we you know we we talk pharmacology a little bit, but 
we're running, you know, we're run, we have we have an art class, you know, art for integration. Like, how do you how do you help a person process their experience with art? I'm interested in how are you, how can you be more sensitive in your language for people who are uh, have have traumatic stress? How do you ask a question? right on the edge of what somebody knows and doesn't know. So they have to go searching for the answers. How do you work with somebody to create an app? That's what I'm interested in. Which is not to say I, I don't adore. There are plenty of researchers that I just adore. They're wonderful people. They have wonderful things to say. They're saints. But that's, that's not what we're doing in my coaching training program. I can point you, if you want that information, I can point you to it. But you can also just Google MDMA chronic pain and it'll come up. You don't need to just Google that. I'm interested in how 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 people, you know. I come from a background, I call it, you know, I'm an in you know, I'm an independent healing artist. I'm a self-employed independent healing artist. And if that's kind of what you want to be, that requires a lot. It requires you be in the trenches. And so I'm not asking people really to write me research papers. I'm asking people to drill exercises with their peers and write me notes about what happened. Do the extra, do the practice, coach and be coached, coach and be coached. And that way they develop not only professionally, but also personally. Do you think there is a appropriate, maybe best practice related to how much time somebody should spend integrating their experience? No, there's not a, what there's not a one size fits all like experience. Like you, you say experience. I don't even know what you, you're talking about. It is an experience where like not a lot happened is an experience where a lot happened is an experience. that was psychological was an experience that was spiritual. You know what I mean? Like this is why you, you, you get in trouble with one size fits all because you're not working. You're not integrating an experience. You're not coaching an experience. You're coaching a person. Let me ask my question a different way. Are there phases that one should go through after an experience? Like the stages of grief? I mean, yeah. Like, are there stages of integration? Well, so aftercare, right? Making sure people are solid, stable, they're grounded. You know, just taking care of their, their basic, again, safety, low chakra needs. Um, some meaning making, right? having those conversations that are going to um, help people gain insight and awareness to what's going on and what's there. There might be some of that uh, experiencing, like how do we experience the joy, keep the experience of the joy and the love more in our body. So there's that vib such hippie nonsense to say it like this, but that vibrational harmonization. And then maybe there's that plan for how, what am I going to do with this stuff? You know, how am I going to build my retreat center, my metaphorical retreat center? And so those are basically the four that I work with with people that I sort of am showing my students. That, that basically, that covers most of this stuff. I call it staying in the bob, that cool. third one. <laughs> for those of you who don't uh, know. That's straight out of India. For those of you who don't know, uh, bhav or bhavana means a divine mood. And it kind of relates to you know krishna has many moods because he is a very deeply multifaceted 
being, and sometimes he's in the mood of love. Sometimes he's in a more fierce mood, but it's always a divine mood. And so this mood, mood is almost like their way of saying the, the somatic felt sense in some ways, perhaps. And so if you want to be in, in the bhav of like compassion and understanding, it's, it's not a rational thing. Heart, body, mind thing. So, how's that for like kind of a um, easy peasy four step plan? I think it's really great because I think that the the steps are significantly more important than the time yeah. frame. I asked you a time frame question before, and depending on the intensity or the type of experience, the the integration of that could could be you know a couple days. It could be you know a couple years or maybe a couple decades, depending on what happened. I think the steps that you just offered are, are a lot more yeah. manageable uh, and a lot more customizable to the experience. Yeah. And then they're also kind of, fra- you know, cause, cause then of course, if we had, if you were my training program, we would look at the, the bullet points under those bullet points and the bullet points under those bullet points. Yeah. That, that kind of thing. Yeah, Absolutely. One thing that I, I heard you speak on another podcast, and we talked about it just very briefly at the beginning uh, before we went on record, is this polarity of accessibility versus sustainability. And I'm wondering if you want to share some ideas around that. It's an interesting concept that pops up in the psychedelic world a lot. This the retreat center that, or the maybe the I don't even know what they're calling themselves in Oregon that just announced you know their paid psilocybin uh, journeys for you know, one day, $2,800 and the, the amount of um, dissonance that showed up in the online community it was pretty significant. And I think integration is a challenge. Preparation and integration are also challenging when we fit them into this bucket because there can be a lot of time and effort devoted to preparation and integration. And for practitioners that are doing this work, one might think they need to get paid to do it. Somebody else might not think they need to get paid to do it. Yeah, well, you know, it's I, I want to just what what really tickles me about the Oregon thing. I was talking to a a, a younger person. They're probably thirty. You know, you know, our, our perceptions change, and they were very they're very sincere and very worried about. Oh my God! Like, are the mushrooms going to be okay? Right? Is this going to like affect like? The, the mushrooms. I was like, they were here before us. They'll be here after us. They're going to be okay. And especially if you consider, you know, we're making all this fuss about this. And, and the person said, oh, we've already had 80 people sign up. That's not even one fish show, right? That's not even one concert's worth of people on psilocybin. So it's like, let's put things in perspective, right? You know, there's jam bands playing all over the country all summer. Each one of them every night is having more people on psilocybin than this place is going to manage in a year, right? So just kind of things are going to work out the way they work out. Polarity is a really great tool for integration, something we do cover. And if people are interested, if you're a coach and you want to see a great tool, it's called polarity management. And basically it's for problems that can't be solved with one single answer. There's a difference between two plus two and it's it's four spoiler alert four um versus the question of how do i maintain a livelihood while 
creating access for people who might need this the most, who can't afford to pay, perhaps because I'm a caring person, because I care about others and I also care about myself. So there it is. How do I balance my care for others with my care for myself? Right. And that doesn't, and that changes from day to day. But what you have are two things that are both good and important and have positive poles. But if you do one to the without while ignoring the other, there's often something detrimental happens. Like if all I do is care about myself, then I'm cold and and I, I become selfish and my relationships suffer. Right. But if all I do is care about others and not myself, well then I can't maybe I can't pay my rent. You know, and I'm and I get burnt out and my nervous system is jacked up and I might leave the space altogether. So finding ways to live in that flow you know the graphic is like literally like an infinity sign a figure eight flowing back and forth flowing back and forth trying to maximize the positive qualities while minimizing the negative potentials and so that's a really good integration practice because what is happening you know almost like from a parts work perspective you're asking parts of yourself to come together and um, compromise and find balance what that means for those of us who are trying to make a living as self-employed healing artists has a lot to do with, again, our skills, beliefs, and our traits. It's like, what do you believe about your worthiness, for example? Or what do you know about kind of running a business as a business? I know a guy who is most one of the most brilliant coaches, uh, just brilliant, brilliant guy who can just really just incisive and just cut through to the core of things and do it in a way that is wonderful. And you're almost like, wait, how'd you, wait, you almost like, it's almost like a chess master, right? You're playing. And then all of a sudden you're just like backed into the corner of your own bullshit. Like, how did you do that? Guy's working as a landscaper, right? Not that there's anything wrong with being a landscaper. You know, that's good, noble work. Good. You're working with the land. Love it. It's, it's, it's the only problem is he, he doesn't want to be really right, but he can't make it as a coach. Like he doesn't have the, the, the skills and traits and beliefs that make his business viable. Right. And so he's just, so he's pushing a mower. And again, pushing a mower is fine. I don't, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not really what he wants to be doing and it's a waste of an extraordinary talent. And so we don't usually get trained as to those sorts of skills. Sometimes if we're an independent healing artist, we're just supposed to kind of like hope and pray that Ja will provide and that we somehow attract or manifest enough people. And, you know, and we're doing that in a world that doesn't really respect its healing artists. That doesn't, that doesn't put a value, you know, people, I, I get requests, you know, for scholarships for various programs. Oh, can I take this for free? I don't have the money. And I look on their Instagram account and they're just drinking fancy umbrella, umbrella drinks on rooftop bars in far off places. Like, well, you have the money for that. You know, you don't have money to invest in your own well-being. And that is, uh, that's the thing about intangibles. So I don't, I don't have a ton more to say about it, but 
you know, we live in a culture where not a lot's handed to us necessarily. Got to be ready to charge for our services. Confident. I think it's part of our karma that we were put in, for many of us, we're, we're put in this culture to work through our own stuff. And it's our responsibility to do that work. And if I pick up all of my stuff and I just move to the jungle and, and disappear, I'm I'm bypassing a lot of opportunity to to work on my stuff. The guy that's mowing the lawn for me, it comes up. There's there's a tiny drop of selfishness in that because you could work on your own stuff and then help other people. But there's an element of selfishness and I don't want to work on my own stuff. Therefore, my natural gifts, my natural talents, I'm not sharing with the world. What are you working on now? What are you excited about? What's coming up next for TAM integration? Well, I mean, I don't know. You know, you told me when this is going to come out, but we're about half full for our year-long training program. I, I, I don't try and make it too big. We've got 24 spots. Half of them are taken. It starts in October. And, you know, if people are interested in working with me, right, because this is, this is what you get. I mean, we have a lot of great adjunct faculty, but going to mostly be hanging out with me. Then, you know, I, I suggest going to the page and, you know, watching the info session, seeing if something that's interesting to you and then reaching out and talking to me about it. That's pretty much Who's what I'm doing. Who's the perfect person? What's that? Who's the perfect person for that? You, baby. You You're the perfect the, person for the it. Ideal. <laughs> well, yeah, that's obvious, but other, somebody other than me who would be a great candidate to to join the program. An independent healing artist, you know, yeah. maybe a clinician, and that could be even a therapist. But, you know, it's again, it's nice to work with folks who know what it's like to work with me. Um, I do, of course, have folks who, you know, come from real jobs and they're doing it and they're they're doing good and they're figuring out how they're going to structure their businesses, what they need from it, how it's going to work. And I've got a couple of folks who are really just doing it for their own personal enrichment. And that's cool too. Retired guy who's hanging out. He sits with a couple of his friends or he coaches a couple of his friends. He's happy. All right. Four questions, uh, maybe three questions in a speed round here. Uh, Why do you do this work? What else am I going to do? All right. What's the most important thing this work has taught you? Love is the answer. The nature of the mind is space. And the best advice you'd give someone new on their path? Get out of your own head and help somebody. Beautiful. Um, is there anything else that we should know that I haven't asked a question on? Um, well, yeah, there was definitely a thing that I wanted to talk about, but we're, we're out of time. We don't have time for that. And let's keep them wanting more. It's super important. It's a total underpinning of like the whole philosophical system of the training program. Do you want nope. to talk about it? I have time to talk I, about I, it. I, I got to uh, go to the bathroom and get to my next call. Okay. Last question then. If people want to find you online, if they want to get the cliffhanger, uh, if they want to answer the cliffhanger that you just left them, where do they Tam find integration. you online? I have, I have, I think most of the, most of the social things that are, are TAM integration. And if you go to like the Instagram, there's like the link, you know, I've got the link tree that's got a lot of cool stuff on it. 
you know, free gifts and all that. All right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I will let you get back to your two adorable children. And Go Vindas. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. You're very welcome. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the Psychedelic IQ podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would really mean a lot if you could leave us a positive review. If you're a practitioner working with psychedelics, please subscribe to the podcast or join the free community at psychedeliciq.com. And if you're looking for deeper connections, knowledge sharing, and even peer support, please consider joining a mastermind at psychedelicmasterminds.com. Thanks, have a great day, and remember, you're perfect and you're right on time.